the Library Marketing for Library Marketers podcast. I'm your host, Katie, and I'm excited you're tuning in. Today's episode is an awesome one because I'm joined not only by Mark and Angela, who have been on my podcast recently, but also Ned Potter, academic liaison librarian at the University of York, trainer, speaker, and author of the Library Marketing Toolkit. And I have to tell you that we get a little distracted somewhere near the middle or closer to the end uh, by my cat, Theo, making a special appearance in my web camera. So you'll hear a bit about him briefly. All right, on to the episode. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Some more sleep, but otherwise I'm good. How are you? I'm doing I'm doing well. Your travels back from the uh, MLA conference, I take it we're good. Oh yeah, I only live an hour away from Port Huron. Good, good, good. How was yours? Oh, fine. No problems. Very smooth. Yeah. I saw your list of um speaking engagements and you are incredibly busy. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I'm uh <laughs> This, uh, the month of November is going to be probably the busiest in terms of speaking that I've done um, in about six months. May was really busy and November is going to be really busy. So, but um, I love it, actually. <laughs> I do. I love traveling. I love seeing people. Um, I love, I was just thinking this morning about next week and LMCC and how much fun that's going to be. So, uh, I don't mind. <laughs> it's awesome. Is this your dream job? Yes. Yes. This and so my other dream job, there's this place in Michigan. You've probably heard of it. Greenfield Village and Henry Ford Museum would love to work there in the village, like dress up in period costumes and and be, I think they're called a docent or yeah, whoever the people are that like. They're in the, I would love to work in the farmhouse, actually, the uh, Firestone farmhouse and like cook and do that kind of stuff. So maybe when I'm old. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Um, yeah. Hi, Ned. Thanks for joining us. Hopefully you can hear. Sorry. I can't hear you now. <laughs> Hello. Okay, great. <laughs> Um, Ned, this is Angela Hirsch. I don't know if you two are yeah, um, acquainted. Okay, we good. Are, yes, yep. <laughs> Lovely Hi, to see Angela. you. Lovely yes, to see you. I think this may be the first time that we've spoken, it's true, not yes. by email. So this is really yeah. exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Long, long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Hi, I'm sorry I'm late. And there's Mark. Hello. Hi. I'm sorry. Hi, I'm late. Thanks for joining Hi. us. Oh, you're fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm like really excited. Show. Oh, no. It's, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also invited Kathy Dempsey and Cordelia Anderson, and I'm not sure if they'll be able to join us. Um, so they might join us a little bit late. Sure. Okay. 
But I'm really excited to be hosting you. Thanks so much for joining me on um, Library Marketing for Library Marketers, my podcast. And um, I'm Katie Ned. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on here without ever having met me. <laughs> <laughs> it's really nice to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. And um, today with me, I also have Mark Aaron Polger and Angela Hirsch and Ned for um, any of the listeners who are joining us today. Ned Potter is also a library marketing expert. <laughs> um, so I, if you wouldn't mind just going around, we can start with Mark. Um, just talk briefly about your experience as a library marketer and your background and just kind of introduce yourself. Okay, um, I don't have a marketing background, so I guess I would call myself an accidental marketer. Um, I really learned it on my own. I was a children's librarian um, a, about like 20, like 22 years ago. And I kind of like learned a little bit about marketing uh, from being a, a librarian, specifically in a public library uh, you know, focusing specifically on children. So my target audience was really promoting literacy for kids. Uh, and, and I really learned about, about marketing and outreach and communications, those three, I guess, prongs or elements of marketing um, through, and it was such a long time ago. It was so long ago. Because uh, I, I was scared of kids. I'm not scared of kids anymore. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think it was, I think it was about in 2000. So it was, it was uh, almost, almost 23 years ago. So uh, I, I really, I don't have any um, formal marketing training. I've read books. Uh, I've done it, you know, on the job. And uh, I've read other, you know, marketing literature, and I've written books. So, uh, you know, so reading books and writing books, that's a it's a learning process, and also doing it on the job. So uh, I think that it's my but I'm not I'm I'm accidental. I don't I, I don't have an MBA in marketing. I don't have a marketing degree. I'm finishing up my PhD in education, which is I again really uh is is somewhat, you know, not related to what I do practically. So, you know, what what I'm working on and the theories that I'm working on are really not um very much connected to what to what I do as a practicing academic librarian. Anyway, I'm sorry for talking too too long and going on, but anyway. Well, I, I always enjoy hearing about your background um, because it's so varied and extensive. So also, I think it's pretty common that a lot of us are accidental marketers. <laughs> All right, Ned Potter, would you mind going next? Sure. I mean, it's a similar story, really. Um, I was doing a lot of talks about communication in libraries because nobody else was talking about it i i feel like the 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 bar for um you know being someone who's interested in marketing is in our profession it's like you really have to express any kind of interest in it and you're already in the most interested people category so i was doing a lot of talks and then i was asked to write um a book this is you know 10 years ago now um more um which i i did and it's a weird thing where I don't disagree with anything that I wrote 10 years ago, but there's nothing the same I would write again. I've learned so much in the intervening period. Um, and so uh, I ended up doing, you know, running workshops for libraries and uh, around marketing and communication and social media and stuff. So now 
my kind of day job uh, is at a university in the in the north of England, University of York, but I'm part time there so that I can do workshops for other libraries and groups and stuff for the rest of the time. So I've ended up spending a, a lot of time talking about marketing, despite, like Mark, almost accidentally falling into it, really. Thank you. I, you know what, I think I've heard um, multiple people reference your work, Ned, and also Mark. Um, and I'm sure if Angela wrote a book, she would be referenced also. <laughs> Which leads me to our next guest, Angela. Oh, um, so I also don't have a background in marketing. <laughs> That's our through line here. My degree is actually in journalism and communications. And I spent the first 20 years of my career working in television news and then decided that I wanted to get out of it and got a job at the library where I work, um, which is in Cincinnati, Ohio, in the marketing department, because really like journalism and marketing are related. They're all communications. Um, so worked in the library in Cincinnati for about seven years and then got my dream job with Novelist where I'm now the manager of engagement and marketing for that company. And then I have on the side, my blog, superlibrarymarketing.com, which I started when I worked in Cincinnati at the, at the library, because I felt like I was blessed with a lot of resources and really recognized that there were many of the folks doing library marketing that do not have budget or staff. Um, wanted to share what I was learning and talk about some of the things that we were doing that were successful in Cincinnati and translate it for some of those people who are not, did not have that, those kinds of resources. Um, and so that's kind of where I, I come in and, and there's an article from Ned on the blog. <laughs> We've talked with Mark. So um, yes, we I think we're, it's funny. We're all connected in some way and, and I'll know each other outside of, of this particular podcast. I mean, I think that's because we're so excited when someone else is also passionate about the same thing, right? And it's, it's a relatively small pond of people. So we're like, hey, uh, you know, it's exciting. Yes, you're right. Yes. Um, really appreciate uh, other, you know, other people in libraries that love to talk about libraries in general, but also when it comes to talking about how we can better communicate and increase awareness and advocate for libraries through marketing communications, that just gets me incredibly excited. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about, um, obviously, library marketing and communications outreach, uh, public relations, but also the library marketing and communications conference, which is next week. And I know for a fact that Mark and Angela are going to be there. I wasn't sure if you were going to be attending Ned um, or if you have in the past. No, exactly. I'm assuming this is somewhere in the U.S., is it? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I would love to be there, but uh, no, sadly, I am not. Um, we're oh, we're both presenting, so yeah. we're presenting, and and I and I I just my my, my presentation often is going to be grounded on on Angela's because what Angela's pre you're presenting twice, right? You're presenting, mm -hmm. right? So, um, because I'm going to be presenting on on, on partnerships and how also the library is not neutral. So that really grounds and builds a foundation on your presentation, Angela, that libraries are not neutral and that we must be, you know, political and take a stance and, you know, being neutral can be, you know, sometimes 
you know, dangerous. We can't be neutral. And that's how I'm interpreting your presentation. Um, I haven't gone to it yet. Uh, and I'm excited and I'm hoping it doesn't conflict with mine. So uh yeah, um I I've present I've I haven't presented every year at the Library Marketing Conference, but I was part of the 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 founding committee of of planning. And uh, you know, so it was back in 2015. So it's a really fun conference and it's very specific to marketing communication. So it's one it's super fun. And um, it's smaller than ALA. ALA is is crazy. It's super, super, you know, overwhelming and intimidating. So, uh, yeah, I'm sorry to cut you off. I apologize. I just wanted to say that the Library Marketing Communication Conference is amazing. Yeah, I kind of wish you were going to be there, Ned, because I think you would totally love, I mean, you, you were talking oh. about how it's fun to find your people. These are yeah. your people. It's oh, going to be it 400. Great. Yeah from all over the US and, and Canada, probably. Um, I'm one of my coworkers is from Canada and she's coming in to to attend. And and like Mark said, it's, um, it's hyper-focused on marketing and communications. So sometimes, I don't know how it is for other people, but I'll go to conferences and there's usually like a block in the day where there's just no session that really speaks to me and I just can go back to my room and do my work that is not going to happen next week we are going to it's going to be like i was going through and having a hard time picking sessions because they're all good and they all relate to our work so it's going to be like all day long and then we're all going to hang out at night at dinner and it's yeah i'm sad you're not going to be there well listen you know put put a word in for me let's let's make this the start of project me getting there in 2023 or something like that you know it sounds fantastic yes I'm afraid to tell them to invite you and get you over here for next year. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> so I know you don't really have any um, uh, background knowledge of the the conference, Ned, but do you guys have um, conferences or workshops that you often attend? Yeah, it's funny, though, the... Um... That there is, as far as I know, in the UK, we don't have any marketing specific conferences. There are there are general conferences, but they're on much smaller scale than the ones that you have. So, like, the, I've never been to ALA, but I've been to SLA, and the the scale of the SLA conference was was basically like every single UK conference over a year put into one three day period. It was just huge, you know. Um, but we do have the the conference that I feel most passionate about is is the UX in Libraries conference. And as Mark will tell you, uh, the 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 link between UX and marketing is it's really like it's a circle, you know, because the, the first for me, the first step in any kind of marketing process is understanding the audience and then you go from there. So there is it's a fantastic conference. Um, UX lives is what it's sometimes shortened to. And that is the one conference that I will always try and get to whatever happens. Like that's that's the kind of I'm 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 always sticking my name down as before it's even been announced when it is, because I'm just like, I need to be there because it's incredibly interactive. It's really nicely planned. It's very international. There's normally, um, I think, at least 40 countries worth of delegates there in amongst like 150 people. So it's really multinational. Um, everyone's very positive because UX is just a, you know, everyone who does it loves it. So we all feel really kind of happy. <laughs> it's just, it's just great. So yeah, we do talk about communication a lot in that, in that UX context. If we had a 
specifically there, there's a um there's a marketing group as part of the um SILIP, which is the uk's library organization which is roughly equivalent to the ala i would say so they have a, a national like a one-day conference each year which is the closest i think we get to what you're talking about here with with your conference and i have presented that before and, and i've really enjoyed that um but yeah we don't have a big kind of three-day event where it's just focusing on marketing sadly and if we did i would be there in a shot you could start one <laughs> i know yeah well to be honest I, I used to be on the organizing committee for ux libs and it was so such hard work i mean it's so intense organizing conferences i would rather do a keynote with no preparation time than in terms of stress levels than organize a conference it's such a lot it's so full on there's so much responsibility i loved it i genuinely it's one of those things where it's like two years of being on a committee for the what i think is my favorite conference in the world incredibly fulfilling incredibly stimulating but such a lot of <laughs> such a lot of work so i don't think i'll be starting a conference anytime soon but if i do i'll get you three to come and uh, and, and guest at it oh that would be lovely <laughs> um i'd like to talk more about user experience so for libraries that um Obviously, we're talking more about libraries who maybe uh, don't have the time to generally invest in researching and um, or, you know, they don't have the resources to be able to understand their communities a little bit better. What tips or insights could you share to help them um, improve user experience at their libraries? And I realized... <laughs> That's a really large question to be asking because libraries are all different sizes and they have various um, behaviors within their own communities that are very different from each other. So any anything that you could probably offer in a general sense as like a place to get started. I mean, I'll, I'll go first and um, Angela and Mark do, do correct me if you, I, I, I my views on this are, I think that UX, the, the emergence of user experience as a kind of practice in libraries is the most exciting thing that's happened to librarianship in the time that I've been here, which is sort of 15 years or so. I, I love it. Um, and I find that the, the information you get from essentially talking in detail to people on a one-to-one -one basis is so rich that I now essentially refuse to do any kind of large scale research if someone says i want to do a focus group i'll just tell them don't do a focus group just don't do it just do some ux instead even surveys i i, I think surveys can have a, a useful place especially if they're focused and especially if they're um you know single issue surveys work well but the giant surveys that we tend to do in the academic sector where it's just like uh Basically, by the end of the survey, people are clicking the button for, please let me out. I've got a family life to return to. I can't spend six hours on this survey. Um, it, it kind of drives me mad. I don't think you get useful data. So my, my tip would be for, for a library that hasn't done any UX is to start with either a space or a demographic. You know, you can, you can investigate a particular area in your building, for example, or you could try and understand more about a particular group of people who use your library. So pick one of those. And then if you do... If you start off with five people where you um, spend an hour with each of them and it can be like a what we tend to do is we tend to get them to do some sort of activity and then we do an interview with them afterwards. Uh, and the interview is kind of semi-structured. So we know some things we want to talk about, but what we don't have is a list of formal questions. It's a proper conversation where the, 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 yeah, the library user is essentially leading what we talk about. We find that 
The data you get from that one hour each is so incredible that you feel like you can genuinely make an informed choice after you speak to sort of 15 people. I like there's a there's there's stats about this um, to do with like you get 80 percent of the data from 15 people. And then after that, it's diminishing return. Anyway, if you speak to five people and you could do it about marketing and comms, you could talk about how people get their information about the library. You could talk about where they don't look, where they do look like you could talk about where the library fits into their wider you know, pattern of their day and all that kind of stuff. If you do that with five people, I guarantee you'll learn stuff that is way beyond your expectations of what talking to five people should be possible for. <laughs> and then as a result of that, you'll be more interested in thinking, well, UX is messy and time consuming, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's just so useful. So start small, see if you learn a load of stuff that you find useful. And then from there, it tends to snowball and, and carry on. So that, that would be my thing. I don't know, Mark, what would you say? Yeah, um, I agree completely because a lot of times, um, and I, I've spoken to Kathy Dempsey and Angela about this, that very often like marketing is upside down. People, you know, spend so much time uh, engaged in all these types of marketing activities and events and, and promotions, and they haven't even asked their library users first which is ridiculous so and it's just, it's just such a waste of time and 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 money so you know conducting i i'm all for semi-structured quality of interviews that's what i'm doing for my for my dissertation so uh it provides a lot of rich detailed information it's wonderful and for it's very time consuming so I, I I tend to also supplement it with um, online questionnaires or or you know like actual written surveys. We have many assessments uh, at my library, and what I mean mini, I mean five questions. So you know they complete it in a minute. They're online and on paper, and um, it really great gives a really great snapshot of a particular library service or resource, but we also supplement that with, um, you know, very, very labor intensive, uh, qualitative interviews, um, which, which is really great. Cause it's also, it's also part of ethnographic research of observing people. So it's, you know, again, it's part of, of, of anthropology. So UX is, is wonderful. It's a wonderful discipline that, you know, kind of librarians have embraced because it's a great way of studying users. And it's a great way of, of of really understanding them more because you know that that's our marketing is informed that way. And and I just I want to say that in in writing my book, uh, I've learned a lot from Angela's videos, and I've cited your book with Ned so many times in my in my because my book was published in 2019, and Ned, your book was published in 2012, I I believe, <laughs> yes, right? Yes, yes. So I've of course I've cited it, and I think that you know market research and you using different UX methods of gleaning data and getting information from our users is very important it informs us it informs us how we do our job properly it informs us in how we communicate with uh with our users and and it's also part of my latest book on signage you know uh one of one of my chapters is on you know signage and wayfinding research methods which are borrowed from UX. A lot of what we do when you are studying li uh, library users' preferences to signs and wayfinding is definitely borrowed from, from UX. So I don't know if I answered your question. I hope I hope I did. Yeah, I've just Oh yes, I, you I, definitely. I, I'm I'm so I I uh 
um, I don't want to just, uh, for the two of us to speak and not let Angela come in, I just want to follow up on one thing you just said, which is we've just done a massive signage project at my um, institution. And we bought your book as part of it, Mark, by the way. Uh, And uh, and we used UX techniques as part of the, basically to work out what to put on the wayfinding. And we've just finished installing the signs. And they are just so great <laughs> and, yeah. and they, are, they, they look great and everything but the, the the fact is we know that they've got on them the things that this the that our users want to know about in the signage because we've right. talked to them at length about it and right. it's just so right. satisfying to make that informed choice anyway i'm so That's sorry great. angela let we will stop talking yeah. and give you a chance to a pine on ux if you wish <laughs> that's all right I'm, so this is one of those times where i am learning from others the only okay. thing that i have to add um the thing that was going through my mind as i was listening to both of you um is that i think the reason that all of this works really well and is really valuable in libraries that it is that it gets to the psychographic motivation of our patrons and if we are going to strengthen our industry and move forward and be competitive, we have to do more than just churn out programs and and marketing materials and other stuff. We have to really connect with the motivations and how people view our library, how they think about our library as part of their community. And UX is like the best way to go about doing that, I think. Curious um, what your thoughts are on modeling, improving user experience after um, businesses and especially like supermarkets or general stores where they often at the checkout, they'll have a little um, button that says, how was your experience today? Was the store clean? Like a few questions and it even has it on the, the, the receipt. Yeah, so I, <laughs> I love grocery shopping. And the reason oh, I think God. I love it, yeah, is the user experience. There is the major grocery store chain in my area is called Kroger. And they are very personal in their approach in marketing. So I get paper coupons in the mail and they are all things I have purchased before. There's nothing in there. Like they might throw in one or two things that they must have an algorithm that tells them she's purchased these five things. She probably will like the sixth product and they're always right about it. Um, and they send me digital coupons through email and in my app that again are, are absolutely the things that I want. I order through my app now by getting on. And the first thing I see is here's all the stuff you put in your cart the last three months of the year, do you want to buy these things again? Of course I do. Cause like I am a repeat purchaser <laughs> of grocery items. So it's just very, very personal. Having said all that, we, I'm not going to say we can't deliver that kind of experience because we could, but we, the library industry has privacy concerns legitimately. And many libraries are, worried about holding on to and regurgitating information about how people are using their library because they're they are very focused on privacy concerns my personal opinion (laughs) is that i'm not gonna say that's not something we need to be concerned about but i think that that libraries sometimes go too far on the concern level 
and there's a middle ground that we could be harnessing and we could be more personal in our service to our patrons. And I would love to see us move forward in that way. But I would also love to hear what, what Ned and Mark have to say about that. I mean, I, I think it's really interesting. I think one of the most interesting, I don't know how you feel about this, you three. One of the interesting things about working in library marketing is the constant tightrope walk of working out which parts of for-profit marketing are relevant to us and should we should be trying to aspire to and which parts we shouldn't because there's there's so much that is 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 helpful and for libraries to just be completely closed to that world is not productive but also we can't just go and do what they do because there's a whole different set of parameters so so trying to find the right balance um between the parts of the business models that we you know take for ourselves and the parts that we ignore is just a constant ongoing thing that I just think is really interesting. I don't think there's, there's a there's no kind of you know official formula that you can apply for it. You just have to do it on a case by case thing to work out what you want to do. But yeah, the 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 data and the personalization is interesting. The the problem I have is is if we if we just did everything ourselves, <laughs> then I would I would have much more a comfort with the idea of providing the kind of personalization that a lot of data can provide. The trouble is that certainly in my library, you know, the systems that we use are, are third party systems that we're paying for. And, and as soon as you involve another institution or, or company, or whatever, then it becomes harder to guarantee that the data is going to be, you know, used in the way that you would want to use it. So that for me becomes where it becomes harder to think about that, that high level of uh, grocery shopping personalization stuff that Angela was talking about, because it becomes, you know, we don't have the control in the in the way that would make me feel like I could completely reassure users about how we were going to use the data. So yeah, so we don't do that kind of thing. Um, but I can see the attraction for how it might be done and, and why people might like it. Um, I, I love grocery shopping. So I just want to chime in because uh, I never knew I, I, I'm, 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 I'm in, I'm in my late forties. So I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine that in my, in my twenties, I, I love grocery shopping, but I'm on sabbatical this year for an entire year. And I go to the grocery store a lot. And I find that there are so many connections with with libraries in terms of you know merchandising and looking at segmentation and looking at um, end cap displays, and there are so many similarities. And uh, my my partner who lives a zip code away, like literally twenty minute walk, we have two different apartments. Uh, and he is he's semi retired. He goes to grocery stores every day as well. And and it's interesting how we both we go to the same grocery store, but they have different products because our neighborhoods are very different. Um, I live in New York City in in the borough of Manhattan, and my neighborhood has a lot of you know people in their twenties, like a lot of young people, a lot of families. But and and the products in our stores. So in terms of my love of grocery stores, um, I, I'm from Canada originally, and I've been living in the United States for 14 years. So I think the food is better here. I just I love I love I'm sorry. You you know, as a vegan, I'm vegan and I, I'm not gluten-free, but I do embrace gluten-free food, but I'm a vegan and I've been, uh, I've, it's been over 30 years that I, I don't eat animals. And so I love, I love, um, I love Trader Joe's, which is, you know, really famous, uh, American grocery store and I love whole foods. So I love food and I love grocery store shopping. And what's interesting is that even though I'm only a zip code away from the neighborhood where, where my uh, significant other lives, 
our grocery stores are different. They have different products. And so it's just interesting that I get jealous, you know, when there's, you know, uh, a, a two liter or I don't know what it's called in the United States. I should know. What is it like, okay, a two liter. I know, I know Ned knows what I'm talking about, but a two liter, like, you know, vegan ice cream, um, which I, I guess would be like two quarts. Does that make sense? Like two gallon. Quarts. Oh, <laughs> sorry, yeah. sorry, yeah. sorry. I, I was no, totally I, doing Come on, Mark. Well. I, no, I'm sorry. I should, you know, I should know this. I'm, I, I am, I'm now, I'm now a U.S. citizen. I'm now a U.S. citizen. I should know this, but so I, my, my neighborhood only sells pints. So when I get like pints of like vegan ice cream, I'm jealous when other neighborhoods based on different, different research, because different, different segments, you know, they sell, you know, um, uh, gallons, which we don't have in my neighborhood. I, I cannot find them in any grocery store. And so it's just interesting that because of research, that's, it comes down to research, the food at a grocery, at a national grocery store, they'd be like different products, different sizes, different flavors. And it's all because of the power of user research. And so I think it's very powerful that user research, you know, reveals why some products have different sizes and different flavors. And it's just so interesting. So if I want to get like a larger size of, you know, my favorite vegan ice cream, I have to go one zip code away, which is a 20 minute walk. But, you know, that that I find that really fascinating. So, and, and, and I think that very often for profits, you know, I think we can learn a lot for, for pro we can learn a lot from Target and Walmart and grocery stores and department stores. And not that we can we can model our libraries that way, but we can learn a lot from NCAP displays and how stores segment their users and how they um, focus on their on their email marketing. And I think I just think that we we definitely I know for me uh, as marketing is part of my job. Uh, I, I'm, I'm also, you know, a, a reference librarian and I teach information literacy classes. So marketing and, and outreach and communications are part of my job. I do look to stores like Target and Walmart and Whole Foods and Trader Joe's for inspiration because it's like, wow, they, they did it well, you know? So uh, I, I know that we're different, but I, I do think that, you know, uh, for profits like grocery stores, they can they can really uh, reveal a lot that we can kind of learn from them. So I think that that they're pretty useful. I wonder if there's a movement at all as we become uh, more focused on user experience to kind of shape the library differently with um, how the library itself is laid out and the use of wayfinding signs. Um, I know that some libraries locally here in the state of Michigan have been dis exploring kind of and discussing the idea of having neighborhoods so that the collections resemble more of like a Barnes and Noble where your genres are grouped together and then employing um organization by the author's last name, if it's fiction, or you still using the Dewey Decimal System for nonfiction. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? All of the, well, not all of them. There is a movement in Cincinnati to renovate all of our Carnegie era libraries. Um, and two or three of them have been finished so far that I've been able to go inside and see. And the they look 
like a totally different library than the legacy libraries that haven't been renovated. There is an explosion of UX happening in those buildings and it's so cool for and and it's not it's not super innovative high tech stuff. It's things like shelves on wheels. They have shelves on wheels and they can move them around so they're situated in a certain way now and in 3 years when that neighborhood in which that library is located changes demographically or or in any way, they can move those shelves to match the needs of that neighborhood. They can move furniture. Um, they they have done things like soundproofing and and but then also spaces where you can make noise, which we never had before in a library. Like there are designated here's the space where you can all be noisy. Um, especially for kids, like there are kids' rooms, they're not um, an open area, they're now in a closed space, and the flooring is made so they can be messy, and it's not going to make a library custodian lose their mind, because it's going to be easy to clean up, so there, I see it happening, it's, but it's so expensive, and so the barrier for a lot of libraries is monetary, like we don't, we're not making money as like a for-profit company is, so we don't, it's difficult for us to implement these things. I think most libraries want to do this work. They just don't have the money or the staff or the time to do it. But that doesn't mean we can't strive to continue to get better at it. Yeah, so the, um, when I was, I think I started working in libraries in, um, 2006 and um james neal uh prominent u.s librarian was um over in the uk doing some talks i think maybe a couple of years in to uh my librarianship life um and at that time I, like it, it it hadn't become necessarily like a vocation for me in the way that did it was you know something i was enjoying but i, I hadn't been kind of lit up by it necessarily but james neal did a talk at my old place of work and basically he just—I I mean, I don't—I'm I'm reluctant to say what he said because it's a—it's like 14 years ago, uh, so I probably misremembered it. And B, you know, he had a really great presentation, which I'm going to now butcher in a two-line summary. But essentially, what he said was, every library starts with the collections and then thinks about the people, whereas every library should be thinking about the people yeah, and yeah. then—and it's just like—you know—we know this to be true, but at the time, uh, it was just exactly the kind of thing that made me think, "Oh my goodness, we really are like—we can think about things in a different way." Really did like it's not if someone had said to me you know which should we start with the people or the books i would probably would have said people but i just hadn't intellectualized that whole concept and and it really made me think and i think that um you know even the way in which we you know do the kind of stuff you were you were saying about the way we frame the collections and so on that's still about the people <laughs> you know it's all, it's all it's all about the users so i love it when we start to rethink this stuff and i love it when there's libraries that just um, I love it when a library opens and it's been it's either a new library or it's refurbished and someone has managed to have a conversation with the architect from a user experience point of view and to represent the people rather than just let them design the building from a purely architectural point of view. And then because you, you see it, you see it in how well the building works for people, not just like it doesn't just look nice. It works well. And I think it's great. So, uh, yeah, we just the, the signage thing I was talking about earlier was actually an offshoot from a huge UX-led project that we did about space and just about understanding the way in which our users used our buildings 
as we go through this weird stage where we're no longer um, in the uh, basically like when the when the pandemic hit, we had we had to completely change so many rules about the way that the library worked just because of things like capacity. Like we needed to know how many people were in the building because there was limits for how many people could be in a building. And now that's starting to ease the way in which people use libraries is sort of changing uh, for, for the for the students, certainly. So we just did this big old project trying to work out what they needed, what we were doing that was a kind of legacy of early 2020, which doesn't mean anything now versus stuff that did need. It was really fascinating. And it was just, again, going back to the idea that the changes we made were informed by our particular community. So I, I, I think it's great that we can see these examples out in the world, but I also love it when we can cross-reference ideas that we've seen other libraries do with what our particular user group really cares about and make sure that they, they do want the same thing. And then when they say, this is what we need and you give it to them, it's just a great, just a great feeling, you know. Um, our our library was built in the 90s the early 90s and it was it is had no consultation with librarians or any library workers it's shaped like a circle so think of it like uh washington dc uh or uh, it's just a bunch of circles circular like rotundas and there are several of them and that branch off just like you know like like washington dc and uh, I've been there, I'm going on my 15th year being in that library and I'm always lost, always. And so the, the signage and wayfinding has improved, but we have no money and we have no budget and uh, like a lot of libraries uh, and i work in a in a in a public university system in new york city called cuny c-u-n-y city university of new york and and we don't you know um we we don't have any like any capital projects or any money and i mean large amounts of money to really fix the infrastructure so you know uh, everything we do is diy it's do it yourself so uh we're trying to make uh users less confused less anxious and of course less lost because i always get lost and so i think responding to users and asking users first is is really uh the key it's the solution and and just one practical example which didn't cost any money is that we were so obsessed with having our library be quiet which is something that you know angela referred to that really we need to respond to the natural the org organic behavior of college students. Uh, I, I work in, in a comprehensive college, so we have associate degrees and bachelor degrees and master up to doctoral degrees. And we're one of the campuses of, of the CUNY system. And it happens to be that our students are really noisy. So we we now have designated, you know, the first, first and second floor as the noisy floors, because that's the natural, you know, the natural behavior. And the third floor is the silent floor, because we were so obsessed with making sure that our library is silent, which is totally not realistic at all. That now we know that, you know, the first floor, and this is all based on segmentation research. It's all based on on understanding the segments of our of our student community. And so the students who are serious and the ones who are actually studying are on the third floor where it is legitimately silent and has been silent for the 15 years that I've been there. And the second and the third, I call it like the dance party. It, it's like first and second floor is like going to a bar. It's so loud or it's like a food court. 
And it, it bothers me because I have a sensitivity to noise and I hate noise and, and I really am very sensitive. But the first and second floor are responding to the natural behavior of college students who are socializing and collaborating and talking and, and you know, and eating. The only thing that the only thing that I know is which is illegal is vaping, because we did we did have a lot of before the pandemic, we had students having like vaping in the library, which is, you know, it's illegal in New York City. Uh, which, you know, again, common sense, don't smoke in the library. But, you know, eating, which my colleagues are are very much against, I personally am not against eating. I think eating is a fundamental thing that we all have to do. And uh, our college campus is 204 acres. It's very large and we don't have a proper student center. So students come to the library and they eat. That's the natural behavior. Um, it, it is disgusting when we have bugs and mice and other types of animals running around. But the natural behavior is students have to eat, you know, and we don't have a proper cafeteria or student center. And so, you know, the, the way that we design our spaces should, and, and I really, really believe that an architect should consult with students, should consult with library workers, and they don't. Our building, they did not. It's it's so clearly... Um, the user was not consulted. The li library worker was not consulted when we designed our ridiculous circular building where everybody gets lost. So, you know, the, the key, the key to success is involve the user, involve students, involve library, involve the community because we, we are, we are a public building. We're a public university. So anyway, sorry, I've, I've said too much. Sorry about that. It's and just just Katie, do you mind if I just pick up on something Mark was saying? Oh, sure, like, yeah, go ahead. So it's just so one of the things well, that we that we did as part of this project was I was trying to work out how to express our policies on a sign. So this this all goes back to communication. I know signage is very kind of unglamorous, but it's a really important part of comms, right? And uh, and we were trying to work out, you know, how do we say this and. We all know that there's only so much a sign can do uh, if the policy it's expressing is is hard to understand. Um, and we actually ended up changing the policy because because I couldn't find a way to say it uh, that was in any way memorable or understandable. So we had, you know, like Mark was saying, um, as Andrew's referred to, that the idea of noise in libraries and so on. And we had uh, silent zones. We had quiet zones. We had studious buzz zones, which is our equivalent of Mark's like bar zone, where the, there's group workers encouraged, foods allowed, etc. But the thing is, the 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 food policies and the noise policies weren't joined up as one. So you could be in. We have these three interconnected buildings, and you could be in one of them and have one noise policy and one food policy, and then you could be in another one and have the same noise policy but a different food policy. And it was just it was so complicated. Um, and so we basically rezoned the buildings to better suit the way that they were already being used and to simplify the policy. And then we got the signs made to express the much more easy to understand <laughs> uh, rules, essentially. And it's just so much better. It's so much better. And we did, you know, follow up UX with, with, with the students and uh, like ask them basically like, this isn't a test, but what are our policies on food and noise and stuff? And they, they, they know that they could actually, they know what they're doing now. Um, and one of the things that we did was, essentially d designate one building as being entirely sort of the studious buzz loud thing and then the building at the other end is silent 
And then the building in the middle is a mixture of quiet and silence. So there's a sort of geographical sliding scale of noise and chaos, which is you know quite useful, I think, for the students to be able to move through. And we had this big space in our lobby, um, which was, you know, very, very basically you can't get into any part of the library without coming through this one place. So everyone was funneled through this space and it was very chaotic. There was a lot of noise coming from it. People couldn't hear themselves think at the at the reference desk at the front. Um, and it was very untidy, people lying around. And so we essentially redesigned the space to absorb some of the noise and to be designed to work for the way in which the students were using it anyway. Rather than trying to stop them from using the space in the way they wanted to, we made the space better work for the way that they wanted to use it. Um, and it's just, it's so much better now because the first impression you get when you come into the library is one of a space that is working for its purpose. We had this nice fabric wall made of, you know, fab bricks made of fabric, which really does sort of seem to suck in the sound um, and stop it from spreading. So the, the, you know, the functionality of people talking at the desk works better. And it's just, again, it just goes back to this kind of refrain that we keep going back to, which is that if you try and essentially come up with something that people don't need or want, however good your comms, however good your marketing is, it's a losing battle. <laughs> Whereas if you can make the service something in the first place, which is actually suiting the needs of the user, it becomes just a whole different thing to be part of the communications team that's trying to get this stuff across to people because people want to hear it and it's easy to frame and encapsulate rather than being this kind of uphill battle to even express what it is we're trying to express you know yeah that that made me think of something i'm so sorry kate it's okay no go ahead we're, we're, two, just, we're two questions in so far I know. <laughs> but um as you were talking about ease of use one of the most frustrating things for library patrons that it's an it's a problem that i don't think libraries have been successful solving is sign on to the gazillion different digital vendors that we use to deliver that is books. my argument i know so um novelist we just got signed on with um this company called clever it's a single sign on dashboard for schools and as soon as like I heard about it I was like oh why I like I want to email clever and say can you please make something like this for public libraries so that you put your card in one time your pin or your password whatever it is and then you get access to all the stuff in the library through one dashboard and that is I would love to see somebody solve that problem because I think that is a huge barrier for many of our patrons to using our services. And if we could solve that problem, like the floodgates would open. I'm so happy that you brought that up because I have been saying this for like the past five years that one of the biggest barriers to um, the user experience and people understanding what we actually have is all of the separate logins. And wouldn't it be nice if there was software out there where you only had to log in once yep. and then you could just select from the list what you would like to explore and use that day. But I'm also kind of curious, you know, that kind of bring, brings up the question because we were all talking about um, how the space is used and responding to the way the space is used. One of the things in my experience um, is that libraries, no matter how big or how small, if they have wall space, 
They put signs or flyers and they use every bit of space as possible that is available to them for flyers or event info or um, exhibits. If you have the space, should you be, I don't want to say cluttering because that's kind of negative, but should you be utilizing it that way? Because I think sometimes when there's an overabundance of things to look at, um, it kind of all just gets ignored. <laughs> it becomes noise. Yeah, it's exactly. It's white noise. It just becomes static. That's just, yeah, I mean, we we talked to the students about this as part of the projects and, and just said, you know, like what, because what would happen is um, we would, so there would be an issue, something would happen in the library and then someone would make like four signs that address that issue and stick them up. And the trouble is that it just becomes you you filter it out you know this is something i've, I've talked about for, for a decade we, we as human beings existing in in 2022 have to be good at filtering because what's the alternative you know what i mean like we, it would be impractical to live if you couldn't filter out stuff that you wouldn't so we're all good at it whether it's you know marketing messages from the advertising that we see or if it's literally signage and the students were just saying, we just don't see it, especially if you if you've got like four things saying the same thing. It's almost less effective than having. Well, it is. It's less effective than having one thing saying it because it's just it's just wallpaper after 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 time. So it, but weirdly, though, we used to have a director at our institution who had a white wall policy, like she didn't want anything on the walls at all. Um, and so for, for a long time, we had nothing up. And I feel like we, we're now getting to the happy medium where we've gone from there's nothing at all, which is a bit of a missed opportunity to so much stuff. Uh, hello, cat. That is that the, the uh, Sorry. For, the, for the listeners at home, there's some serious cat tail uh, swinging action going on on the screen um, to, to having, you know, basically just so many little things here and there. And I think that's part that's a that's part of a kind of metaphor for wider marketing things. If if we are too diffuse, you know, if, if we have got fragments of comms everywhere, it doesn't register with people. It's just there's too many little things for them to care. You need something that is tangible and solid. So now we've got, you know, fewer signs, but the signs that we've got are really, really helpful and clear. And it's just it's so much better. So I, I would agree with you, Katie, that, that there is a definite risk for cluttering. And one of the you know most simple uh principles of good marketing that a library almost every library can apply is to simplify without losing the nuance like if you can find the right level where you're simplifying without dumbing down if you can essentially get rid of what is extraneous and leave what is needed that is the right level of simplification that will be different for everyone but it, yeah there is an objective kind of truth that you can aim for there which is we're going to get rid of the stuff that is extraneous and and that can mean paragraphs in an email it can be things on a welcome stand or it can be things on the wall because the more you get rid of that isn't required the more that the stuff is left is un like you know the focus is on it and it's 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 richer and more powerful and more impactful due to the lack of you know you know how the you 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 imagine us british probably accurately to be obsessed with tea right we're all obsessed with tea the whole time and it's like if you just keep pouring water into the teapot eventually there's almost no tea <laughs> it's just the taste of water we have to stop diluting our marketing by doing all of it all the time and that that counts with walls it counts with social media it counts with with everything so yeah i'm with you on this De decluttering is a powerful marketing tool i think 
I couldn't how, agree more. So, yeah, how so how would you suggest for somebody um who maybe just doesn't know or it's just always been done that way or it's highly encouraged to do that level of extra work, you know, what's the argument for advocating for <laughs> scaling back on on doing all the marketing all the time? I think there are lots and lots of studies done in the for-profit world that you can use as beginning data to, to make that argument. Um, targeted marketing is widely studied by lots of marketing agencies and companies because that's their, that's their bread and butter, that's how they make money. So they want to prove that it has value. Um, all, I mean, most of the libraries that I work with who are doing, I don't want to say too much marketing, but they're doing too much, um, have actually have data, they just don't realize it, that shows that it's not effective. And that can be a, a tool for making that argument to your senior staff, or your director, or your board, or whoever is giving you pushback on that as well. Just look at what's working. And I personally think everything we do in marketing should be an experiment. And if I, I think if libraries could get comfortable with that mindset of always being experimenting, then the idea of pulling back and trying less marketing, but more targeted, specific, nuanced marketing would feel more comfortable because you're doing it in a mindset of, well, we don't know if it's going to work, but let's try it and see, like, what is the, the drawback? The drawback is we keep doing the same thing that we're doing now that's not effective. Um, so I think you can look at the data that you have already and you can look to some of those studies that profit companies have done to make that point. And then sometimes I'm also advocating a little silent subversion, like just do it, just just do it and um, apologize later. Honestly, like is somebody going to fire you because you didn't post three times on Twitter in one day? If they do, that's probably not the job for you, <laughs> like honestly. So um, I have done that in my career at almost every juncture and I just do it and then it works or it doesn't work and I can apologize later and it always works out better than trying to get permission to do it ahead of time. So I am a rebel and I'm advocating rebellion. <laughs> um We've also learned that, um, and I did, I published some studies on this where when you, when you remove, and this is relating to signage. So, uh, you know, less is more. I know that's a really cliche expression, but it's so true. When you have to, when we have too many signs and our library is only, you know, like 30,000 square feet, it's like three floors, you know, um, we had hundreds and hundreds of signs. They were so, you know, passive aggressive, mean, obnoxious, you know, they were, they were repetitive. Uh, library users would ignore them because they would be overwhelmed. And, you know, I make a joke that our, we had this code of conduct, which looked like the constitution. It was ridiculous. No one read it. So we, of course we abbreviated it. And my, my goal is, you know, you can say so much in five words and, and I mean, I, it's, hard to make a sign in only five words but you can you can really express so much with with less words you know and so by removing signs uh it's you know the building is less cluttered it there's less noise uh library users are less overwhelmed and and also they're not ignoring them and so i i do agree that you can put a really large 
compelling sign with a realistic graphic with a few words and it would be you know ADA compliant and it wouldn't be on it wouldn't be on the wall because I don't like to post any signs on the wall I think you know posting signs on walls and furniture are really ugly so you know have it in a bulletin board have it in a frame make sure there's no glare make sure it's very you know it's very readable and uh and don't put don't put on the wall um yeah, I think I think walls should should have, you know, paintings and artwork. I don't think they should have signs and that, you know, and that there's nothing wrong with with walls without signs and furniture should not have signs. You know, we were posting but you know, before I ripped down the hundreds of signs, we had signs everywhere. It was it was disgusting. It was really, you know, and the the library could be more beautiful if you just remove those ugly signs that are, you know, outdated and mean and passive aggressive where they're going to be ignored because there's too many. And I think that um, both Ned and Angela have both described this, you know, that there's too much, you know, and, and, you know, less is more. I think that's uh, I think I, again, just, you know, repeating what, what both are saying. I, yeah, I think it's really interesting that it's going back to what I was saying at the start, when we get together, everyone's very enthusiastic and there's just so many things everyone else is saying that I'm just, in, I just want to, oh yeah, and that, and that, I want to also respond to that. But just to pick quickly on a couple of things that it said, because I think it's so interesting. The, the thing that Angela was saying about, you know, asking for forgiveness rather than permission, something that I say a lot in workshops is that, especially on social media, you really can afford to be brave and try stuff out because there's so much of it you know like if you if you if you one of the things that i talk about a lot is personality putting personality into the library voice it's hard to do because people are scared about like you know do i put my voice into the organizational voice what if my voice is different from my colleagues all that stuff so I, what i say to them is it is better to have personality even more than one personality then round off all of the rough edges so that it becomes completely generic but if you're still worried about it you know try something try a post on twitter because if it doesn't like you know people aren't excited by it it's going to be buried under a trillion other things within an hour you know you can afford to experiment and try stuff out because it, there's just so much of it and your community will tell you whether or not they like what you're doing and and you only really need that one time where you try something and everyone's like oh i quite like this to suddenly feel empowered to put more of yourself into things and try stuff out so when it comes to you know experimenting i do think it is worth remembering that if your experiment goes wrong, it will simply be replaced by more stuff so soon after that you don't need to worry about it. And just to pick up, Casey, on what, on what you know, the, this this notion of like, mm -hmm. how do we get people to do something different? Or if the, the culture of their organization is we've always done it this way, we've always done loads of marketing, for example, rather than scaling it back, just on a human well, level. Hold on, Ned. Um, Angela has to leave. And so oh. sorry for interrupting you. But I just wanted to thank Angela for participating um, today on the panel. And I'm just so excited to see you next week angela i hope you enjoy the rest of your week me too yeah. thank you i'm so sorry to interrupt Thanks, i'll be you. listening to the episode to hear the rest of your answer <laughs> ned but yeah i have see another you. meeting i have to run to i'm so sorry guys. i'll see you next week angela yeah. bye <laughs> thank you angela sorry ned i'm so sorry no, no, for no, interrupting not at all <laughs> no, I was just gonna say, so on a, on a kind of human level when it comes to trying to uh, um, get permission to do things differently, whether it's marketing or anything else, from how it's been done. I think certain things, it's very easy to be glib about, you know, just getting change across the line. But I think certain things really do help. And one of them is, um, like, 
having a conversation with the person who might be saying, let's just carry on doing it like this, that is not over email. <laughs> like, I really think it makes a difference to have a Zoom conversation like we're having now, or ideally, you know, if you can have a coffee with that person, I think it's really easy to say no over email. And it becomes much more meaningful if you can actually have a discussion with people. So getting people in a room, virtual or otherwise, is, is, a, is a really good thing. Sharing them an example of a library that's already doing the thing you want to do is another good thing that helps. So you can do this in a Machiavellian way if, if you think there's like this kind of rival uh, institution that they're going to be uh, wanting to keep up with. But I think more, more, more commonly, you can just do it to say like, well, if you look at Library X here, they're kind of doing something like this already and it's going well for them. Like here's the here's the evidence of why I want to do this, because you can see the success that they're having. They've got fewer stuff, fewer things going out there, but what they are getting out there is having a lot more impact. You can see that in the reactions and so on. Um, and I think also saying to people, I understand that you're coming from this particular place. I'm not trying to just ride over your kind of ideals and just introduce my thing. But the reason I want to do this is X. And if you just give me a couple of weeks to see what it's like, I think you might be on board with it. Rather than sort of saying, right, this is what we're doing from now on. Uh, get used to it. So I think that between those three things of the kind of, let me give this a try, see what you think side of things, the being having eye contact with people while you're talking about it side of things, and they're showing them an example of it already working. Those three things genuinely in some combination help with the whole, uh, the organization or particular people in the organization are bottlenecking my creativity problem, which a lot of marketers I think face in, in our sector, in my experience. I think it's really helpful because we are often already using other libraries as examples. So it should be relatively easy to use that as a way to advocate for doing less or trying something different. Um, I wasn't sure, Mark, if you wanted to add anything else. No, um, I, I think that looking to other libraries as, as examples, comparing, visiting other libraries, visiting bookstores, and also just prior to what I was talking about, looking at, you know, department stores and, you know, supermarkets or groceries. I think that, uh, you know, I think that it could kind of provoke some kind of inspiration to trying to do something at your library. And also I agree with both uh, Ned and Angela about experimenting, you know, that, uh, I, I am nervous about, you know, kind of composing something on social media and having my own voice. I, I am a little bit uncomfortable with that. Uh, and it, it it is risky, but I agree that adding personality and making social media more personable is important and not making it too formal. You have to have some type of, you know, it has to be casual. Um, I'm, you know... So I, I agree with the points that that uh, Ned and Angela were making. That, uh, but I I think we we talked about so many things. There was a lot to unpack and a lot to discuss. But uh, you know, I mean, I want to thank you very much, Katie, for inviting uh, inviting all of us and having us you know have a discussion together. So it was like it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. So thank you. I'm really grateful for you suggesting it, and um, and I'm thankful for you for 
participating and as well as Angela and Ned, it was such a pleasure to meet you. And I'm so um, appreciative of your time uh, with us today. And I would love to keep talking at some later point in the future when it's convenient and we're all able to meet again. So that would that would be amazing. And um, I look forward to reading your research and any other future books that you publish. <laughs> Yeah, I'm. I, so I, I guess I will see you. I'll meet you in person at LMCC because I will be there, and I and I will be pre, I will be presenting uh, something that we've been uh, working on for Band and Challenge Books, and I am working on another book, but it's slow. I'm very slow, very 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 slow. So uh, yeah, I, I I write slowly and I research slowly. So uh, yes, I am very patient. Well, I'm very, my, I'm very, my publisher is not my publisher is not very patient, well, unfortunately, because I'm also I'm I'm also working on 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 you know on a dissertation, which unfortunately the dissertation has nothing to do with the book, right? That's a problem, you know. One is is very you know theoretically informed and it's an education, and the other one is is practice based. It's based on on what I'm doing as a as a practicing academic librarian. So they're you know they're very disconnected. So you know they take a lot of time, unfortunately. So. Well, uh, Katie, you're very patient. I'm very jealous of your uh, upcoming conference. Uh, so I hope you have a lovely time. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for thinking of me for this. It's been really fun to chat yeah. about all things marketing. It's been great. And it's nice to, to finally, I mean, I, I've, you know, you're, you're truly a celebrity, uh, Ned. And so it's nice to, it's nice to actually, it's, it feels like I, I'm meeting you in person, even though we're not, but it's just exactly. nice. Yeah, it's, no, it's it, is it Zoom, Zoom feels like it's in person, but it's nice to finally like talk to you in person as opposed to, you know, like, Absolutely. you know, you know, like reading your tweets or going, you know, going yeah. on your website and, or, or emailing. I know I've emailed you over the years asking for yeah. advice. So it's nice to actually, you know, kind of chat, you know, live because it, you know, it feels like it's in person you know i agree that's great especially with the atlantic in the way it's as close as we're going to get under normal circumstances so it's been really nice i've enjoyed it a yes lot. yes thank you thank you so much katie for organizing this i much much appreciate it so i i hope that the the conversation continues i you know i i'm, I'm so happy you have these these podcasts it's great Thank you. It, it has been a learning experience and it has been a lot of fun. So um, I'm just really grateful for all of the guests who have said yes to talking through Zoom about an amazing topic that we're all really passionate about. So thank you to you, Mark, and thank you, especially Ned, um, for joining me today. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your day and have a great week. And I'll see you, you. Mark, next week. <laughs> yes. Take care, everyone. Bye. Right, cheers, thank you. Bye. 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 Have a good day. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please feel welcome to leave a review for my show, follow this podcast, and send me any feedback or questions you may have for future topics and guests to answer at r. O, T is in Tom, H, L is in Larry, E is in Elephant, Y, K at gmail.com. You can also find me online at thelibrarianmarketer.wordpress.com. Until next time. Yeah. Yeah.